Hey everybody, welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the best podcast in American history, also known as Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. This week we're talking about the populists, one of these big, probably the biggest movement of farmers in the United States, uh, and their reactions to sort of the oncoming of the Industrial Revolution. This is sort of, if you want a little bit of a recap, go back and listen to the podcast on the American, on the Industrial Revolution in the American West. Uh, for some sort of background information to this podcast. So today we're talking about a couple of things here. Like I said, we're talking about the populist party and sort of farmers' reactions to the Industrial Revolution. Sort of three major topics we'll be talking about with that. Agricultural issues coming out of the Industrial Revolution. So what were the problems that the farmers were facing? We'll be talking about the populist party itself. A lot of P's in this episode, the populist party. Why this was formed, what they stood for, and what happened with their their work. And then we'll talk about sort of the legacy of the populists, right? Some of the stuff they did uh, during this time, sort of this, you know, turn of the century era is still with us today and still really matters to us today. So some major sort of questions that we'll talk about in this episode are who made up the populist party? So what sort of people were in the populist party? Why did farmers feel that this party was needed, that this specific political formation was necessary? Why? What were the thoughts of farmers about the Industrial Revolution? We you know how did it affect them, and then were they successful? Right? Did what the populist party was it successful at getting things done? So before we do all that, I want to talk about a famous sort of populist uh, of the era. Her name's Mary Elizabeth Lease. She was a big author and lecturer in the populist sort of realm, the populist world. Worked for the worked with and for the Western Lecture Bureau. This was you know a time when you know you didn't have TVs or movies didn't exist, radio wasn't in every household, and so for entertainment sometimes people would go to what were known as lectures or illustrated lectures, where people had like sort of slides that they would show and they would give you know informative talks, educational talks, but also sort of interspersed with the jokes and humorous talks as well to people, to an audience, a paying audience. And Mary Elizabeth Lease sort of worked in that field. She had nicknames. She was known as the queen of the populists, Yellen Ellen and Mary Yellen, uh, Y-E-L-L-I-N for that last one, right? So she was, you know, this loud person sort of proclaiming for the rights of populists and farmers all across the United States. She didn't maintain that popularity, though, and this is sort of the bit of the feminist, the the sexism at the time, right? People blamed her, and this is a bit of a spoiler alert, for the loss and the failure of the Populist Party in the 1894 election, right? Saying that she was too loud, that a woman shouldn't be at the front of this movement. As a result of that failure, she was ostracized from the Populist Party, in part for sort of trying to introduce women's rights into the issues of the Populist Party, to make them front and center, put, put planks in for the populists. And she said that was sort of the reason why people said that they lost was this focus on women's rights. So you see sort of the, the sexism of the time. Uh, interestingly enough, after she was kicked out, uh, she sort of moved away from women's, women's rights work, moved away from political organizing and activism, and became one of the leading spiritualists in the United States. This is someone who, you know, would sort of go around doing seances, palm readings, all that sort of stuff, getting, you know, Ouija boards, that sort of thing. So she maintained sort of this popular presence, but in a completely different sort of realm, moving from labor activism to 
into spiritualism. I just want to sort of stop, we'll stop talking about Mary Elizabeth Lee soon, but I want to end with one of her quotes here, a famous quote from her. She goes, Wall Street owns the country. It is no longer a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, but a government for Wall Street, by Wall Street, and for Wall Street. The great common people of this country are slaves, and monopoly is the master. Let the bloodhounds of money who have dogged us thus far beware. So that's sort of a big famous quote from Mary Elizabeth Lease, and sort of gives you a clue, a hint, as to what these populists were talking about, right? Similar to how last podcast talked about sort of industrial labor, how they're reacting to the Industrial Revolution, right? The workers at Homestead, the workers at Haymarket. Now we'll be looking at sort of how the farmers are reacting to the Industrial Revolution, because we know from previous podcasts that the Industrial Revolution didn't just sort of change work in the cities, but changed work all across the United States, even for those working in rural places. So what are some of the problems that farmers are dealing with as a result of the Industrial Revolution? I mentioned these, sort of hinted at these in the podcast on the American West, right? Talking about bonanza farms, talking about sort of the locust plagues, but we're going to go a little more in depth into that stuff right now. So there's a couple things uh, confronting these farmers, a couple problems confronting these farmers. One, right, the Industrial Revolution and corporate agricultural, the corporate agriculture, the growth of those Bonanza farms, the sort of taking over of homestead uh, farms from these farmers made farming a losing enterprise for most non-industrial farmers. They had high debt, low crop prices, and droughts and pests made it really, really hard to live as a farmer for a lot of people. Debt was one of these big, big problems, right? The new inventions of the Industrial Revolution made farming easier, but also it made farming very expensive. The startup costs for farming were hugely expensive. Farmers, just to sort of compete at all, had to buy all sorts of new equipment just to keep up with their neighbors to go with the industrial farmers. This included stuff like tractors, Diskers, tillers, threshers, right? All these new equipment pieces that made farming easier, made farming uh, sort of, you know, possible in the West even, but were very expensive. These pieces, these, you know, big pieces of equipment cost a lot first to buy, but then also to maintain. This problem still exists for farmers today, right? Now tractors can put you back and that puts you in debt immediately, right? So you, have to, you go really, really deep into debt to be a farmer today. And this is a problem back then as well. You can't just do it by hand anymore, you know, with sort of your iron hose, the stuff you make at home. You have to go to these big manufacturers like McCormick, like John Deere International to buy their big pieces of equipment. It's not just the debt that farmers are facing, right? There's also these new markets and these new market problems that farmers are facing. One, they can't just go to their local, sort of the local city, local village nearby and sell their goods to the locals at the, you know, a farmer's market or even just in a small local dry goods store, they now have to go to these bigger markets like Chicago, which means sending their stuff to these markets to ship the goods on the railroads, which gets very expensive. These railroads are trying to make money, right? They're not just going to ship stuff for free. They, you have to, the farmers have to pay a rate to get ship stuffed on the railroads. And a lot of times there's only one railroad that services their town, which means they have to pay whatever the railroad is charging. There's not a lot of regulation over what railroads can and can't charge. So these prices can get pretty high pretty quickly. That cuts into what they're making, makes it harder to pay back their debt. 
And then once the goods actually get to the city, they don't just, you know, the train doesn't just stop at a market, right? Stop at a grocery store and just unload all the stuff. It has to, it stops at a depot and stops at something called a grain elevator or, you know, all these elevators for all these goods. The grain elevator companies also want to make a profit. So they charge the farmers, not the train companies or the people buying it. They charge the farmers fees to keep their grain in their grain elevators. And they basically are forced to pay these fees. And the grain elevator, you know, operators can charge whatever fees they want, right? So all these fees are being imposed on these farmers just trying to sell their goods at the markets. There's also now, with these faster trains and then faster steamships and other forms of transportation that allow worldwide markets to compete with uh, sort of local farmers as well, right? Now farmers don't just have to worry about competition from you know their neighbors or people in other states. They have to worry about competition from all across the world. So this puts more pressure on them to go through middlemen, to pay middlemen, to find uh, buyers for their goods and they have to pay the middleman something or they want to do a lot more work and try to find buyer themselves to sell internationally, right? It's just all this, all this market stuff going on that's putting a lot of pressure on farmers. And then there's also the problem of oversupply, right? With the introduction, introduction of these new tractors, with now all this land that is used for farming that have been stolen from native peoples, there's just a lot more land being used to farm, which means there's a lot more crops being grown. There's been new in, uh, innovations, new uh, sort of evolutions of farming technology as well, introduction of sort of early pesticides, fertilizers that make growing a lot of stuff a lot easier. And this Homestead Act that we talked about in the podcast on the West, right, created thousands of acres of new farms in a very, very short number of years, which meant that a tremendous amount of grain was being grown in the United States. Prices plummeted because of this, right? The markets were saturated with all this grain, which kept prices really low, which meant that it was harder for farmers to pay off their debt, right? Instead of earning you know, these numbers aren't exact, but instead of earning, say, a bush, a dollar for every bushel of wheat they sold, they were now earning like 50 cents, right? So it makes it doubly hard, twice as hard to pay back all your debts, to even buy stuff for yourself, to buy seed for the next year of planting. There's also sort of this longer term problem going on as well, which is environmental damage. This this problem wouldn't become sort of clear to most farmers until a lot later, but it was still very much a problem. Sort of this massive expansion, these industrialized farming began sort of the creation of what would later be known as the Dust Bowl, right? Everything that's going on now is leading to the creation of the Dust Bowl. You see the destruction of all these, of the buffalo, right? Sort of the absolute, absolute, even more than decimation of the buffalo population in a short number of years. Other sort of native species to the area are destroyed because their habitats are being destroyed. And that sort of completely changes, ruins the ecosystem that had been growing there and been sort of living there peacefully for a very long time. All this farming and the breaking of the soil, the breaking of the, the giant pounds of the giant fields of sod, right, to actually plant all this stuff, released massive amounts of carbon into the air. It also killed off lots of native grasses that had kept dirt in place, kept water from sort of running off and sloughing off all this dirt into sort of ditches and drains, 
that was now being destroyed, so that no longer could stop that. So you're eventually going to get this massive, massive soil loss leading to the Dust Bowl. But that's sort of a longer-term problem. There's also, sort of to get really economic on you, all about money, you know, there's problems of deflation. So in 1873, inflation had been pretty high in the United States. Uh, speculation had been really high. And sort of to curb this, right, to hopefully prevent a bubble from stop from popping and collapsing the economy completely, the federal government passed something called the Coinage Act of 1873. This first put the U.S. on the gold standard. So I'm not going to get really sort of economic with you, but the gold standard basically meant that all U.S. currency was backed by gold, right? So for whatever, whenever there was a U.S.-backed dollar out there, that you know theoretically meant that there was the same amount of gold in a, in a Federal Reserve Bank somewhere. So that all money sort of correlated to the U.S. gold reserves. So you no longer were greenbacks or paper money the standard currency, but gold was. The problem for farmers was that gold was pretty scarce, right? So this meant there's not, you know, just sort of unlimited amounts of gold out there. And in fact, there's pretty low amounts of gold generally to keep mining it and keep getting it. And the U.S. didn't hold all the gold. So this meant that gold became very scarce. This meant that people couldn't charge as much for goods, right? Just because there really wasn't enough money out there, people couldn't pay for stuff anymore. So prices dropped. This caused something known as deflation. Prices fell, but the problem for farmers was that debts remained the same, right? So the price for their corn or their wheat or whatever they're growing was falling, but the amount they owed the bank for you know buying a tractor or whatever remained the same. So it became even harder for them to pay off their debts. And this just straight up ruined many farmers. They said to give up. Uh, they could no longer sort of afford to be a farmer anymore. It destroyed their livelihood. So one reaction to this for a lot of farmers was to unite, right? To sort of come together. This is how we see with industrial workers, right? They form unions. Uh, they sort of go on strike, right? Farmers, it's sort of a different way of work. They can't really go on strike when they sort of own their own farm, but they did sort of unite to try to get this power of collective action to do something about these problems. And there was two main movements that arose to combat these problems. We'll look at both of them in turn. One is the Grange. The other is the Farmers Alliance. We'll look at the Grange first. So the Grange was founded by this guy, Oliver Hudson Kelly from Minnesota, founded in 1867 in Washington, D.C. So this is pretty soon after the Civil War, right? 1867. The full name of the Grange is the National Grange of the Patrons of Husbandry. That's sort of very you know, formal, everyone just calls it the Grange. But it started out as this local organization in D.C., but by the 1870s had transformed into a national organization. It had about a million members uh, in its mid-70s peak, right? So pretty, pretty big organization. If you remember from an earlier podcast, there are about 2 million people who had Homestead Act acre plots, right? So if a half of them joined the Grange, basically, that's a huge amount. So the Grange had some successes, right? At, the, at their peak, they had some pretty good successes, mostly in the political realm. 
They succeeded in getting standardized rail rate laws, right? So remember, they had to farmers had to pay rails, the the pay the railroads to take their goods to cities. Uh, and they got those rates standardized in states like Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, right? All these states that are built around farming, they were able to pass laws that forced railroads to only that they couldn't charge more than a certain amount. There's also a pretty big success uh, in the Supreme Court level, the Munn v. Illinois case, M-U-N-N, that regulated uh, warehouse and elevator rates. This actual Supreme Court decision declared that states could regulate businesses within their borders if those businesses operated in the public interest. I know that sounds very boring, very technical, but it's actually really important, right? This is sort of a switch in how the U.S. government is working. Before this case, right, it had been really unclear if the government, state governments, could regulate businesses, right? If they could say, hey, you're a business operating in our state, you have to follow these certain laws. Now, today, we think of, oh, yeah, of course, like naturally businesses have to do that. But that was really an open question at this time, right? If the state could step in to private business. And the Supreme Court here says, yes, if those businesses operate in the public good, and if, you know, railroads taking grain to the city so people could eat clearly a public good. This would only, this sort of laws would only become strengthened over time. And this case is sort of really much brought by the Grange. They also had some other successes that were sort of less political in nature, less like legal in nature, at least. They started hundreds of co-ops. So this was places where, you know, farmers banks, right? So these co-ops were like people could sell their stuff together, buy stuff together, and then farmers bank. So banks run by farmers for farmers. They're not trying to gouge these farmers out, you know, right? Destroy them, take all their debt. They also acted as a fraternal organization. If you think of these farms, these 160 acres homestead farms, right? These huge places, that means you don't really have neighbors that are close. You don't have that many people around you. A lot of farmers were very lonely at this time. They wanted, you know, humans are social people, right? We don't want to just live by ourselves. And a lot of people just felt very lonely. And the the Grange allowed people, provided places for people to come together, to just congregate, to have a good time, to do dances and stuff. So it was hugely important for all these people living out in the West who didn't have anyone around them. But the Grange influences, uh, the Grange's influence sort of wanes over time, right? By the late 1870s, its political power had waned. A lot of these sort of co-ops they had built had failed. They weren't able to make enough money to stay alive. There was internal divisions within the Grange as well. You know, when you have a million people, you're going to have a million different ideas about what to do. They So there's internal divisions over sort of what policies to promote. Like, do we focus more on railroads? Do we try to focus on grain elevators? Do we try to focus on just the cultural stuff, just hanging out? And there's divisions over that that sort of weaken the organization from the inside. The Grange is actually still around today, mostly existing as a place for farmers to meet with each other, right? So you have, you still have this, these places, these Granges where, you know, they have dances or whatever out in the country where people can come in and just sort of hang out with other farmers. So they still exist today, but they're much less a political organization and far more a cultural organization. So the other big group that emerges at this time is the Farmers Alliance, and this emerges about a decade after the end of the height of the political power of the Grange, so the late 1880s, it emerges as a national movement. It started 
as sort of a small, just like the grain started as a local movement, the Farmers Alliance started in the South and the Midwest as a series of sort of small local alliances in the early 1880s. Uh, the Farmers Alliance acted as cooperatives, organizing farmers into these collective political fronts. This an attempt to find, you know, strength in numbers, right? Just like how the AFL tried to find strength in numbers or the Knights of Labor tried to find strength in numbers, the Farmers Alliance did the same thing. The Farmers Alliance itself was a, a white organization, right? In the South, the Farmers Alliance banned the participation of black farmers, uh, but black farmers, most of them sharecroppers, started their own group called the Colored Farmers Alliance. They also had about a million members, so a big group as well. They, the, the, the Colored Farmers Alliance fell apart after a failed strike of cotton pickers in Alabama in 1891, but was still a sort of a very radical group for the time. Very much wanted to work with white farmers, right? They, they thought that, you know, the more numbers they had, the better. But these white farmers and the Farmers Alliance were large refused to work with them for, for very racist reasons. Uh, the Farmers Alliance met some frustrations at the beginning. Many bankers and other large corporations refused to do business with them, right? You know, the Farmers Alliance came to them hoping to sort of build these cooperative fronts to negotiate rates for loans and that sort of stuff. Didn't want these big banks, didn't want these farmers co-ops to cut into their own profits. So as a result of this sort of pushback from these big banks, the Farmers Alliance Alliance turned to politics. Big push was something called the sub-treasury plan. And the sub-treasury sub is sort of a specific thing in their language. They're basically just warehouses that they were calling sub-treasuries, right? So don't think of, you know, we think of the Department of the Treasury or the big treasury where, you know, the U.S. US's money is kept or whatever. But in this case, sub-treasuries are warehouses. And this big plan the, the sub-treasury plan was led by the national leader of the, the Farmers Alliance, Dr. Charles W. McCune. Uh, under this plan, crops, so crops grown by farmers in the Farmers Alliance, would be stored in government-owned warehouses called sub-treasuries. And these those crops there could be used as collateral for low-cost government loans to farmers, right? So the farmers could say, hey, I have, you know, this much grain in this sub-treasury. Because of this grain, you can will you loan me a certain amount of money, right, to be paid back over a certain amount of years? This was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly radical for the time, right? I don't want to also like it's almost impossible to overstate how radical of a plan this was. Just like how Mun v. Illinois was radical for for states being able to to regulate businesses, the, the government, like people, like the government, actually providing loans to farmers because of stuff held in government-owned warehouses was a very radical idea at the time, right? Sort of, it'd be a complete reimagining of the economic system of the U.S. It was it was very very radical, right? Almost sort of government-owned agriculture at this point. That's based, sort of what the idea was like. Uh, this plan made it all the way to Congress, uh, but was defeated in 1890. So it didn't pass, but was still a very big movement. because. But farmers were still mad because of all this, right? Their sub-treasury didn't plan. The, the Grange had fallen apart. The Farmers Alliance wasn't able to get their big plan passed. Farmers were still very mad, right? Deflation was still going on, still rampant everywhere. They had tried all these things to stop it. It hadn't worked. Debt was really, really high. 
And because of all this, a lot of farmers were suspecting conspiracy, right? They're saying people are out to get us. And the, the big idea was that these Eastern East coast bankers, right? These bankers and big corporations were in cahoots with the U S government working with the U S government to deliberately keep gold. Remember on the, because of the coinage act, we're still on the gold uh, standard here. And they said, you know, these bankers and corporations are working with the U S government to keep gold out of circulation, to keep us poor, right? They don't want us to be rich. They want to keep us poor because it helps them makes, gets them bigger profits, right? They keep us in debt, keep us paying back that debt. And they, there's one of, that's why they want to keep gold out of circulation. You know, is that is that specifically true? Was there a written out conspiracy by these bankers and corporations to do that? No. Uh, did the bankers and corporations profit off this deflation? Yes. I, I don't want to get you know too into conspiracy theories, but there's a very good reason why people believed in this conspiracy theory, right? It did seem like these farmers were sort of being deliberately kept poor, and at least they thought more could be done about this, right? More could be done to help out farmers. So a new movement started, right? After the failures of the Farmers Alliance with their sub-treasury plan, after the failures of the grain to do anything, they started, farmers started a new thing. They turned a new movement called populism, right? So let's be, this is sort of a big thing. So what is populism? Populism is not a party here, right? This is sort of a capital P populism. That word word gets thrown around today, lowercase p, right? When talking about Trump being a populist or talking about, you know, Bernie being a populist or any sort of politician being a populist, that's different than what we're talking about to we're talking about today, right? This is populism with a capital P. And sort of the main outbranch of populism and that we're talking about today is the People's Party. So once again, using lots of P's here. So the People's Party was founded by farmers in Omaha, Nebraska in 1892. Members of the People's Party were known as populists, right? So that's what populists are. And, you know, these populists were supporting populism. This is basically uh, sort of advocating for farmers. And there's a couple planks in their platform here that we're going to talk about that are really sort of important to understand what the People's Party and what populism with a capital P was all about. So the People's Party itself. So what these populists ran on, these sort of foundations of capital P populism, issues like lowering storage fees in grain elevators, lowering shipping rates, standardizing shipping rates, reversing deflation, right? So their big plan for that was remonetizing silver. So saying, hey, silver is also a legal currency in the United States. It should, you know, U.S. currency should be backed by silver. There's way more silver than gold, which will allow money to flow freely again, which would raise prices, helping them pay back their debts. But it wasn't sort of just about this sort of money stuff, right? This really individual sort of like tax rates and things. They also had goals that very much we're seeking to deal with the effects of the industrial revolution, right? And this is where you get that capital P populism really comes from these bigger ideas. One of those ideas, very radical for the time, was nationalizing industries like railroads and telephones, right? So saying, hey, these are public goods. Everyone needs these railroads. Everyone needs these telephones. The U.S. economy, the U.S. country wouldn't function without them. We should make them nationally owned, 
They also advocated for public ownership of farmland under those same ideas, right? And this is really, really radical for the time that the U.S. government would own farmland. And that's just, you know, if, you think, if you're thinking to yourself, hey, that's socialism, or that's communism. Yeah, that's a lot of people said that same thing, right? But these farmers were like, hey, you need what we're making here, right? So we should be supported by the government. The government should own this and be a part of this. The, these populists uh, also talked about graduated income taxes, right? So if you made more money, you should pay more income taxes. That was a very new thing for the time. They also fought for direct election of senators, uh, secret ballots, right? So you wouldn't know who someone else voted for. Those last two things should sound familiar, and we'll talk about this later because we have those now. Those are sort of the big successes of the, the populists. So that's sort of when you think of the populist with a capital P, that's what you should think of, right? Rather than now with populism, we talk about, you know, it sort of means this idea of you're, you're talking to the masses as a whole, you're trying to rile up sort of the lowest common denominator. That's not what populism with a P means in the 1890s, right? It's about these sort of pro-farmer, almost really radical ideas about industrializing, dealing with the Industrial Revolution, public ownership of farmland, industrializing railroads, all that sort of stuff, right? So two very different ideas. Capital P populism is something that was put forward by the People's Party and the populists. How many P words can I get in there? Uh, not the sort of lowercase p populism that we associate now with Trump. So what happened with this People's Party? What happened with these populists? What did they do? So they be quickly became a very national party, right? Built on the back of the Farmers Alliance. Uh, a lot of people in the Farmers Alliance, when it was sort of started, when the sub-treasury plan failed, joined the People's Party, worked with the People's Party through the Farmers Alliance. Populists were not just Democrats or Republicans. They came from both sides, right? There are populists who are Republicans, populists who are Democrats. There were some populists who spoke about the need for black and white farmers to work together, right? So people said, hey, the more people we have here, our interests are in common, the better we'll be. But many populists were still virulently racist, right? In the end, the populist party sort of didn't advocate for, for racial unity or for, you know, helping bring up black farmers, but there were people within the parties trying to fight for that. And they're definitely sort of black populists. One of the reasons I'm sort of talk emphasizing this is you get a lot of literature. You think of farmers as just sort of these backwards looking hicks who wanted to bring back, you know, a time when the U.S. was primarily agrarian, primarily rural, rural to bring back that power. That's really not the case with the populists, right? They really, they knew the Industrial Revolution had happened. They knew it couldn't be changed, uh, but they just wanted to make it so it was better for themselves, right? They wanted to be a part of this in a way that didn't leave them penniless, didn't leave them broke. Some populists even talked about bringing industrial workers into the movement, right? Saying, hey, look, these industrial workers in the cities, they're dealing with a lot of the same problems that we are, right? We need to work together. That didn't really happen, but there were people talking about it. A lot of these black populists who helped start the People's Party uh, were kept out 
of leadership positions because of this racism throughout the country, uh, even though they were sort of hugely and vastly important in deciding what the People's Party would fight for. So this People's Party, this idea of populism, found some early electoral successes. In 1892, the first year of the party, they ran this guy James B. Weaver for president. He won several states, mostly in the West. He won Colorado, he won Kansas, Nevada, Idaho, got some votes, uh, some electoral votes in North Dakota, as well as Oregon, right? Hugely successful for a third party candidate. They also had some local elections won as well, right? Some states saw state and local governments controlled by the People's Party, once again, mostly in the West. They were helped, the People's Party, by the Panic of 1893. This economic panic only increased interest in the People's Party, right? A lot of farmers were hurt by this panic, so they joined the People's Party in 1894. Two years after their first presidential run, they won several senatorial seats, several gubernatorial seats, and representatives, right? So there was populists who were senators, populists who were governors, and populists who were representatives. It seemed like the People's Party, the Populist Party, was on the rise. Also in 1894, you have something called Coxey's Army happening, this big, big protest led by a populist supporter named Jacob Coxey. They marched, he marched people marched on Washington, D.C. About 400 unemployed workers marched from Ohio to D.C. demanding jobs from the federal government. This is a very, very radical demand, right? Up until this point, the government wasn't seen as sort of an employer in the United States, that it should not be an employer. You know, now it's sort of the biggest employer in the U.S. is the federal government. But at the time, that would have been crazy to think about, right? This was to be employment. People are supposed to make their money from sort of private employ- employment, private businesses, uh, but Cox's army is saying, hey, look, we're part of this country. You owe us jobs. Uh, when Cox's armies made it to D.C., they were arrested for walking on the grass. You know, that sort of common thing, right? Not a real actual charge, but just a way to get rid of these protesters. While Cox's army was ultimately unsuccessful in getting what they wanted, this idea of marching to D.C., marching on Washington, will become a very common tactic in protest movements. We'll see this in a couple podcast episodes later when we get to, uh, there's two sort of very more famous marches on Washington that we're going to talk about. So populism was seen to be on the rise, right? They had some successes in 1892, successes in 1894, and the big election of 1896 comes around, right? And a lot of people were primed for the populace to gain even more seats, maybe even win the presidency. But this was sort of a dangerous one for the People's Party. The big problem was the Democrats, led by their candidate William Jennings Bryan, who comes up in in a couple uh, podcasts later, also took one of the big People's Party's positions, which is the idea of free silver. So this idea that silver should be a major coinage in the United States. He took that from the Populist Party and made it a big plank in the Democrats' party. Bryan didn't support other populist stances, right? So he didn't support industrializing railroads or telephones or any of that stuff. But the problem for the populists is they didn't want to split their vote by nominating their own candidate, right? They said, hey, the Democrats are still this bigger party. We don't want to run a third party and sort of split votes, right? So this is a big problem you see even today. Uh, They said, hey, so what we're going to do is we're going to fusion ticket. So we'll 
nominate Brian on the people's, on the populist parties, you know, the people's party's platform. And we'll also nominate Tom Watson, our own candidate for vice president. The Democrats didn't nominate Tom Watson. They nominated their own guy. Right. So now it was sort of this idea of, well, you can vote for Brian for president and that vote will go to the Democrats, but you'll, you know, you vote for Tom Watson, who is still a very committed populist. So the election of 1896 was sort of a very impassioned election. People were very sort of riled up about this. Brian, uh, William Jennings Bryan delivered his famous cross of gold speech, sort of one of the most famous speeches in American history about the problems of gold, right? Saying America's dying on this cross of gold. We're worshiping this gold too much. But the problem for Brian was that he never really appealed uh, to the northern industrial workers, right? So these big, these big movement, these big unions didn't really go for Brian. They didn't really like him. The industrial workers actually liked the little prices of deflation, right? They were able to buy more stuff. Uh, they didn't like that Brian was this very Protestant guy. A lot of these workers were very Catholic. And so McKinley, who was the Republican candidate, won most of the industrial north. And the Democrats and populists suffered this massive defeat. This actually marked the beginning of sort of a 14-year reign of Republican presidents. And this really, this loss, this massive loss, really spelled the end of the People's Party, right? They sort of had these early successes. And then they tried to sort of fuse with the Democrats. Democrats didn't really want them. So they ran this weird sort of fusion ticket and they massively, massively lost and it really destroyed the party. There's sort of a couple other reasons. These sort of these calls for white solidarity and the Jim Crow South, right? These rich farmers looking at these poor white farmers and saying, hey, we should stick together because we're white, sort of stymied all hopes of all these black populists, uh, black farmer alliance people's hopes of sort of working together the disenfranchisement and violence toward black voters in the south only increased after this right really breaking sort of the potential voting base of the people's party uh 1897 a year after the election deflation finally broke which sort of started and farmers started to prosper again which really cut out the economic underpinnings of the people's party brian ran again for president in 1900 on basically the same platform and lost even worse than he had in 1896 but it wasn't sort of all losses and defeats right They did achieve a few of their goals. As I mentioned, the direct election of senators came out of the People's Party. It became a constitutional amendment that passed. Farmers also began to get access to low-interest government loans, specifically for farmers. So that was very helpful to them. There's also regulation of the money supply, right, to sort of stop deflation from ever happening like that again. The government passed some more laws about money. And there's also the secret votes came into play, right? So this idea that, hey, you know, you don't get to know who your neighbor voted for, uh, so you can't, like, you know, stop them from voting for whoever they want to vote, right? There's no... It really lessens voter intimidation, these sort of secret votes. So some conclusions here while we wrap up. One, the populist, the People's Party, populism, capital P, populism, was really about farmers sort of attempting to find ways to deal with this new world that had been created by the Industrial Revolution, right? There's this new world around, farming was changing, and people needed to figure out how to deal with that. And the People's Party was one sort of thing coming out of trying to deal with that. They were stymied by capital for sure, right? These big banks trying to stop them, but also by racism, right? This refusal 
of white farmers and white workers uh, to work with black uh, farmers and black workers. This populist party, People's Party, called for the making of a new modern United States that was able to sort of deal with the changes brought on by the Industrial Revolution. Some of their more moderate goals were passed, right? This idea of direct election of senators, secret votes, far more moderate ideas than the industrializing railroads, you know, government-owned uh, public land, government-owned farms, right? Those weren't passed, but the more moderate ideas were. Uh, so you, we'll see that with the progressives as well, which next podcast, next week, we'll talk about the progressives, sort of the most moderate of these reactions to the Industrial Revolution, right? We've sort of gone from most radical, these anarchists and Haymarket, then to the populists, and next week we're looking at the progressives, who are probably the most successful in, in like getting what they wanted passed, but were far more moderate than these other groups. All right, that's it for today's podcast. Have a great rest of your day.